pray that you'll be honored. We pray that you'll receive the glory from our worship together now. Your word, again, is so good. And pray that you'll quench thirsty souls by it this morning through your spirit. I thank you for what you're going to do today through it. In Christ's name, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. John 11. Today, of course, is called Palm Sunday, which is the first day of what we often refer to as Holy Week. And what I want to do in this morning's sermon is give an overview of Holy Week from Palm Sunday when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey up until Thursday night where Jesus and his disciples partake of the Lord's Supper together, the Passover meal. But before we even really get going, I want to clue you in onto where we're going to be ending up. And so I want to bring your attention again to John chapter 11 in the end in verses 55 and 56. And it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? So there were all of these people who had seen Jesus and the works that he had done in the countryside and all of these surrounding villages. Probably most significant, recently he had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. So that's kind of our context a little bit, where Jesus has come from preaching and teaching and doing miracles and all kinds of things in the countryside. And so all of these people from the countryside were coming into Jerusalem in order to begin purifying themselves for what was really a very big deal for the Jews, and that is the Passover. So these verses tell us that there's all of these people in the temple area, and they're looking around for Jesus, asking themselves what it says in verse 56. What do you think? Is Jesus going to come? Do you, do you think that he is going to be coming to Jerusalem to partake of the Passover? Isn't he coming to the feast at all, they say? They're wondering, is he coming? Is, is, is the one that we've been seeing in the countryside and doing all of these things, the one who we're thinking is our king, is he coming to Jerusalem? But look what it says in verse 57. John 11, verse 57. But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. Okay, so on the one side, you have all of these Jews who are excited to see if Jesus is going to be coming in to Jerusalem for the Passover. Okay, that's that's the one side. But then on the other side, you have the Jewish leaders who are dying for a chance to lock him up. So you you can sense that there is going to be a little bit of tension between the Jews and the Jewish leaders during the week of Passover when it comes to Jesus. But I want to think about the questions that those Jews were asking in verses 55 and 56. Isn't Jesus coming to Passover? What they didn't realize was that Jesus wasn't going to come to Jerusalem and to do a few miracles, to do a few healings, and enjoy the feast. He was coming to Jerusalem 
in order to be the feast. Jesus was going to ride into to Jerusalem to be the Passover lamb. So that's the direction where we're going in this morning's sermon and where we're going to eventually settle. Jesus is our worthy Passover lamb. And this crowd that was wishing for him to come would get their wish that Jesus would come to Jerusalem. But it wouldn't be to do again what they thought that he would do. So it's Palm Sunday. Not just today, but back then, a couple thousand years ago. Palm Sunday. First one. Okay? First day of the week. And John chapter 12, verse 12 says that the crowd had heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So they, they, grabbed, they grabbed their palm branches, right? You got your palm branches? So they grab their palm branches and they go out to the edges of the city. And Jesus comes and he comes riding into the city. And all of these folks are here to meet him as he comes in. And they're shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So that's what they viewed him as. He was going to be their king. They were thrilled with Jesus in this moment. In their eyes... This is the guy who was going to overthrow the Romans who were controlling this area. He was going to be their political Messiah. He was going to be the one to pick up the sword and to lead them into overthrowing the Romans who had the Jews under captivity in this time. And if you were there, if we were there, we would probably be thinking the same thing and hoping the same exact thing from Jesus. And when you think about it, who would be a better earthly king than Jesus. Especially if you're like some of these people who had seen Jesus do miracles. And you've seen Jesus heal people of leprosy. And you've seen Jesus raise people from the dead. Who would be a better earthly king than Jesus? You'd be waving your palm branches too. You would be screaming, King! I mean, imagine a king, okay, in the context of Jesus. Imagine if Jesus is your king on earth. And he's leading you into battle and pressing out the Romans from your area. And then after the battle, he's able to go around to the dead people and say, get up. And he's able to go over to the people who had their hands cut off and connect the hand back. Or whatever the case is. Who would be a better earthly king than Jesus? They wanted him to be their king in a physical way. They wanted him to set up a physical kingdom to be like the the days of old. They wanted to go back to the days of old, like when they had King Saul or King David or King Solomon. They wanted a king to rule over them in that kind of a way. That's what their expectation was. But Jesus, at this point, wasn't going to be setting up a physical kingdom. He was setting up his spiritual kingdom like we've been talking about as we've been going through the book of Matthew. But this is what his expectation has been. So the hope is that Jesus is going to come and begin pushing the Romans out of Israel. But instead, he does something different. He pushes the Jews out of the temple. So that's what he does on Monday. He goes into Jerusalem. He sees the, the temple. And that it's been turned into what Jesus refers to as a den of thieves. And so he goes into the temple and he begins pressing out these people who were buying and selling in the temple. They were treating it like it was a common area. area. 
So Jesus literally drives these men out of the temple and he's overthrowing tables and turning them over. He's righteously angry for what these men are doing in God's house. He says, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. It is not supposed to be a den of thieves. And so Jesus was righteously angry over this and rightly so. But as the week continues, even though he knows that his time is coming when he's going to be killed on the cross, Jesus is going about business as usual. He's teaching his disciples through things like the the fig tree. When he tells the fig tree to wither and die, and then it, it dies. He continues confounding the religious leaders of the day when they come up to him and start asking them questions. And Jesus is confounding them still with his answers. He even is giving lengthy teachings that we see through in the end of Matthew. But as we come into Wednesday, things begin to get a little more heavy in terms of what was going on with Jesus and what would eventually happen to him. So he had spent Monday and Tuesday doing a lot of teaching and doing the things that he had generally done over the last few years. And he continues into Wednesday. But some of the surrounding plot begins to thicken as the religious leaders continue pursuing the idea that they want to arrest Jesus. But at this point... They were afraid of doing it. Jesus had just come into Jerusalem on a donkey a couple of days prior. And the people were thrilled with him. It was the Passover time. So there's crowds and people all over Jerusalem. It's Passover time. And the religious leaders were really concerned that there was going to be some sort of riot if they had arrested or killed Jesus. I mean, you can imagine if someone with an incredible amount of popularity came in and then you're going to try to persecute them. You can see how the crowds would go crazy but they would soon get the break that they needed when Judas Iscariot one of Jesus' disciples comes to them and tells them I am willing to betray Jesus several texts in the gospel say that Judas was actively looking for a way to hand Jesus over and in Mark 14 we see that the chief priests were delighted to hear that Judas was willing to hand Jesus over to them So all of that is swirling in the background. All of that drama with Judas and wanting to betray Jesus is swirling in the background as we head into Thursday of Holy Week, which is the day of when the Passover lamb would be sacrificed. So since it is the day of the Passover meal, Jesus tells his disciples, Peter and John, hey, I need you guys to go over and start making preparations for the Passover meal that we're going to have tonight. So Peter and John, they go off and do that. And so as we come into Thursday night, they're all sitting there and they're eating the meal. But John 13 tells us something incredible. So they're all sitting there. They're all eating the meal. And Jesus gets up during the meal He takes off his outer layer of clothing. He gets a a towel and he wraps it around his waist. He gets down on his knees and he begins to take the filthy feet of the disciples and wash them. He begins to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus was not their disciple. They were his disciples. And he's getting down in great humility and washing their feet. He even washes the feet of Judas Iscariot. So after this, Jesus is reclining at the table with his disciples and he looks at them and says, one of you is going to betray me. And you can imagine those words coming from Jesus to to people that he spent the last few years with sitting around this table and he looks at them. One of you 
is going to betray me. And of course this causes them to be sad and to question Jesus. Am I the one who's going to be the one to betray you? Even Judas looked at Jesus on that night after he had already told the chief priest that he would betray Jesus. And he looks at Jesus in the eyes and he says, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus says, Yes, it is you. At that time, Satan enters into Judas and Jesus tells him to go and do what is in him to do. And the other disciples, they don't, they don't expect anything. So, so Judas goes off with clean feet, but with hands that are about to be stained with blood in order to betray Jesus for a few shekels of silver. And there's some debate over whether Judas is still at the table for what happened next, or if he did leave right away then to go and betray Jesus. But after the foot washing, after telling Judas it would be he who would betray him, Jesus institutes what we call the Lord's Supper. Communion. Eucharist. Whatever you call it. So turn over to Luke 22. Luke 22. Remember, this is, this is Passover week. This is something that the Jews had been celebrating for a long time. Something originally instituted thousands of years earlier when they were still living as slaves in the land of Egypt where Moses told the people to grab a lamb and put the the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their homes and there were specific instructions on how they were to cook that lamb and what they were to eat it with. Particularly, they were to eat the lamb with bread that didn't have any yeast in it. It was to be unleavened bread, which is why the Passover is also called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. But the Passover, as the people of God knew it, was about to be fulfilled in Jesus. In other words, there wasn't going to be a need for the Passover after Jesus died on the cross. As God's people, we no longer celebrate the Passover meal because all the lambs and goats that they had to kill for the meal pointed to Jesus who would come and do the work on the cross. Okay? So all of that, all that Passover meal stuff, all of the sacrificial lamb stuff, bulls and goats and all that, that's all about to be fulfilled in Christ. So a meal, however, would still remain for the people of God in the Lord's table, but not in a Passover meal. But look at Luke 22, verse 19 and 20. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he took the cup, saying... This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Very familiar text. We read those verses basically every time we have communion. But Jesus takes the bread, he breaks it, he starts passing it out to them, and he says, this is my body. He takes the cup, he says, this is my cup. It is the blood of the new covenant, and I am pouring out this blood for you. But Jesus' words here, you can't miss this, Jesus' words here are so much more than an object lesson. This is not a simple object lesson. He's not sitting there thinking to himself, well, gee, it's, it's really convenient that there's bread and wine here and that these things kind of represent me and, and it's just kind of this loose association, just kind of a nice little object lesson. Jesus' body 
was literally like, like a crumbly piece. A lot of you have seen unleavened bread. I'm you. You, you break it. It's just a crumbly piece. Jesus' body was literally going to be like a crumbly piece of unleavened bread, going to be broken, and it was going to be the hands of his own father who were going to break him. His own, his own father was going to take him and break him. The one that he had never crossed, the, the one that he always glorified, the one that he always did the perfect will of, God the Father would break his son like you break a piece of bread. The blood of Jesus would literally pour out of his body. He would literally sweat great drops of blood that would fall from his body to the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane later on this night. But this blood that was poured out of his body would be applied on behalf of believers to protect them from the wrath of God so that when God sees the blood, he will pass over us because the lamb has been slain and the blood has been applied. And my friends, that is what we have in Jesus. Blood has been applied on our behalf. A perfect lamb that has come to be our Passover lamb. Like we saw in Matthew when when John the Baptist cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, as the Lamb, has paid the price. Jesus was crushed so that we could be made whole. Jesus Blood was poured out so that it could be applied on our behalf. Jesus went through hell so we didn't have to. Yet it was the will of God to crush Jesus. And Jesus went through with all of this because it was his father, his father's will. Jesus prayed when he was in the garden. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. That's what he was still concerned about. Our Passover lamb was sacrificed because it was God's will. He would perfectly glorify God with his life and he would perfectly glorify God in his death. To any of you who don't know this Jesus in a real way, how, how does this information hit you? you? You don't know Jesus. In your mind you're saying, I don't know Jesus. I don't really care that much to know Jesus. But how does this information hit you? Does it hit you simply as information? Even in a state like Maine, where very little of the population goes to church, we've talked about that a few times um, since coming here, 2 to 3% of the population maybe goes to church on a given Sunday. But in a state like Maine, where very little of the population goes to church, on this coming weekend, the churches all throughout the state are going to be packed. They're going to be filled to the brim. Pastors aren't going to know what to do. They're going to have, need more chairs. going to be sitting on the floor. And all of these pastors will get up and talk about the fact that Jesus died on the cross. That he was buried and that he rose again. They're going to present all of this like it is factually true. And I would be willing to bet that there's going to be a lot of the people that are sitting in the congregation who will say to themselves, Yeah. I think that that is true. Historically, I, I, will, I recognize in my mind that Jesus truly did die on the cross and that he was buried and that he rose again. I, I, gen, I genuinely don't doubt that a lot of people who will come to church in the coming week think that, that Jesus died, he was buried, and that he rose again. But will knowing those facts get you eternal life? 
Will, will knowing those facts gain you forgiveness from God? Well, knowing the facts of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, will that bring you eternal life? No. Simply knowing facts about the gospel does not mean that you trust and believe in the gospel. But believing and trusting in these truths will gain you forgiveness. So when Paul says in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your, with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So there's a confession and a repentance of sin. There's a belief in your heart, Paul says, not just up here in your mind, in the truths of the gospel. So whether you attend church often or not, whether you're a member of this church or not, are these truths recognized in your heart and not just in your head? There's a huge difference between recognizing that these things historically happened and realizing that your sinful nature was crucified with Jesus on the cross and that you were raised with Jesus from the dead so that sin and death no longer have dominion over you. The Passover lamb has been slain and you have been made clean by his blood. Turn over to Revelation 5. Don't usually flip around so much, but Revelation 5. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what the Jews were participating in during this week. He is the true Passover lamb. No more lambs needed to be sacrificed after the true Passover lamb Jesus was sacrificed. But look in Revelation 5, and we'll start in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? So this angel comes out with a mysterious scroll that was sealed shut, and he asks if there is anyone worthy to break the seals off and to open the scroll. Look in verse 3. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So the angel asks if anybody is worthy to open this scroll. And up to this point, the answer is no. Nobody on heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll. Nobody was even worthy enough to look inside of the scroll. And so John, the one seeing this vision, begins to weep out loud because nobody is worthy enough to open the scroll or even look inside of it. So verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scrolls and its seven seals. So this is good. So the elder comes to John and he says, No, John, don't, don't cry. Stop crying. There's a lion of the tribe of Judah who has triumphed. And he is worthy to open the scroll. And so John looks over, right, to see this great lion. But look at what verse 6 tells us he sees. Then I saw a lamb. Looking as if it had been slain. So Jesus, as, as the lion, was triumphant through what he did as a lamb who was slain. And so he takes that scroll and the singing begins. Look at verse 9. 
And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The Lamb that was slain was worthy of all of this forever. Turn over to Revelation 7. Just a couple pages over. Revelation 7 and verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and what were they holding in their hands? Palm branches. On that first Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem with a great crowd of Jews standing there, palm branches in their hands. Palm branches were a sign of victory. They were what many ancient men would, would make crowns out of and put them on their heads after they were victorious in battle. They were a sign of joy. And these Jews stood there couple thousand years ago, welcoming the one who they would call the King of Israel. They were joyfully welcoming Jesus with palm branches, the sign of joy, the sign of victory, the sign of triumph, thinking that Jesus had come to set up their earthly kingdom to protect them and to get out the Romans. But they were so short-sighted. Jesus did not come to overthrow the dominion of the Romans over the Jews. Jesus came to overthrow the dominion of sin and death over an innumerable multitude. We get a glimpse here in Revelation of Jesus being worshipped not only by the Jews, but by a great multitude from every single nation and tribe and people and language. And that people is innumerable. The Lamb of God was slain in order to redeem a people for His name from all of those places. So that now the Passover Lamb isn't just received by Jews, but those of us here who are from all different backgrounds and nationalities. Jesus is the worthy Passover Lamb for all of those who trust and believe in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your willingness and your humility and willing to place yourself under your Father's will in order to come and to do this on our behalf. We thank you for the remaining meal that is for the people of God in the Lord's table. Thank you that you have come to be the feast. 
Father, I pray that you'll do a mighty work of saving. That throughout this week, many pastors and many Christians in our state and in central Maine and in this town will have opportunity to share with others the truths of the Passover lamb and what he has come to do in being slain for an innumerable multitude. Thank you for all this that you've done through Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.